Well, welcome to the Christians in Sport podcast. I, I love the guests I got. You know, I love it. But I, I've got to say, and it's not to the detriment of anyone else, this is Chris Jones. And we've gone back a long, mm. long time. Here's the sensational Chris Jones, right? Sensational. Banned for life twice. Ho, ho, big story. Sensational. How can you be banned for life twice? Uh, the guy who carried an axe round in his bag and now carries a New Testament. That's a nice little strap line. What I want to do is to dig out how this bloke, who was playing international level rugby in his youth age groups, ends up having a career known as a thug throughout the game, and yet watch this in the interview. He won't say it himself. Bright as a button. Clever kid who finds a way of proving himself in a different way. But then spends most of his life, pretty much all of his adult life, really nurturing young men at rugby to the point where the area of Wales that he lives in and the boys that he coaches have broken all records since 1993 in Welsh rugby. Long introduction, I know, but I want to really get under the skin of Chris Jones. This is the Christians in Sport podcast with Graham Daniels. Chris, axe in the bag. What, nutter? I suppose, uh, yeah, I, 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 um, I lived up to a reputation. Um, you know, the, 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 uh, the madder I could be, um, the better it was, you know, the, um, sadly, that's a, the type of person that I'd sort of developed into. Uh, and I do the sensational thing deliberately at the start because it isn't you, certainly. I've known you a long time now. But help me with this. You're a kid who's going through the age groups, Wales 15s, 18s, top player, grammar schoolboy in a system when you had to be selected uh, for education at a young age in, in days gone by. So what what happened to that bright kid who was highly performing at school and on the sports field? Why that change? Um, well, I think, you know, is, is context, obviously, Graham, um, you know, w where I come from uh, is the Rhondda Valley. And, uh, you know, people from outside of Wales tend to think of all of Wales as the valleys. But actually, um, the, the valleys area is a, a small section in South Wales. We like to think it's the heart of Wales. Um, and it's where most of the coal mines and that were. Uh, and especially in the Rhondda, every village had at least one coal mine. That type of work bred hard people and growing up in that sort of area um, we sort of realized that to be respected you uh, would have to drink a lot of beer be a good fighter and um, be a good rugby player I think um, Lynn Jones the the uh, old Ospreys and Dragons um, coach said when he came to play for Chalky everyone up in the Rondas hard Odd without the H, odd. The, the, the babies are odd, the grannies are odd, everyone's odd. And, um, and, and that's what I, I just realised that, um, you know, to, as I said, to, to get admiration amongst my friends, amongst my peer group, 
um, I had to be a tough guy. But how th- there's a switch here. I, I think that's what I'm underneath on the story. Uh, you spent since '93. You, you've really invested in young men, yeah. boys and young men, yeah. to make them rounder people. So I just want to push on this, Chris. Everybody's hard without an H. Okay, got it. Coal mining, uh, masculinity. Yeah. So everybody plays tough. Everybody yeah. plays dirty. Yeah. We'd call it now. Yeah. But you were just like everybody else to a certain point. So why did you try and be more hard, more, more nasty? Oh, I, because you had to be really yeah. slightly unhinged yeah. to be nastier than others. But you're a bright yeah. kid. What? Why? Why? I, I don't know. I suppose I just wanted to be um, tougher than everyone else, more admired than, than everyone else. As you say, when we played rugby back in the, the 60s and 70s in the valleys, it was a very violent game, very different from today. A very, very violent game. And the, the tougher the, the player, the harder the player, the, let's make no bones about it, the dirtier the player, the more sort of respect they had in the community. The establishment would sort of uh, wash their hands of it and, uh, you know, look down on it. But amongst the the local community, you know, those those tough guys were almost like folk heroes up in, uh, up in the valleys. And so I just wanted to be, um, I don't know, seen as tougher and mm. madder than everyone else, duller than everyone else, I suppose, it, you know, you would, as the way things turned out. You... You were five foot five foot eight. Yeah. If you'd have been six foot one, yeah. right? Yeah. Then would have been able to be identified as a full Welsh international. Yeah. Would you have gone that way? Uh well, I don't know. Um, you know, the the, the thing was, I was playing in a position open side flanker, um, and 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 I loved that position on the field because it's an all action type of position, but. The game was just changing from the the, the, the style of play uh, of the open side, um, and and they were looking for bigger players. And people said when I was younger, you know, the Wales under 15 squad and Wales under 19 squad, one day you, you play for Wales, but there was a question mark because of my size, um, and uh, you know I just realised by the time I got to about 18 or 19, I wasn't going to grow any taller, but I could grow wider. So by a lot of uh, weight training and bulking up, I sort of moved into the front row. And, um, you know, the front row on a field, again, especially up in the valleys, was where the real hard men played. And I suppose it was a case of, of um, you know, to survival to start, but then, you know, but then wanted to prove myself as a, as a toughest of the lot. And, you know, um, and obviously, uh, you know, there were a lot of tough men up there uh, as well. Um, every sort of uh, village team had its own local hard men, and it was a challenge every game, you know. But, um, you know, as mad a game as rugby is, uh, and, and, and as was in those days, there were still things that weren't allowed. And obviously, I, you know, I did a lot of things that weren't allowed and got sent off a lot of times, eventually culminating in, in two life bans. So it's... It, I love the way you talk, Chris, because I've said the word sensational a couple of times. You certainly don't sensationalise it. Absolutely not. I, I, I see that and I know that very well. But I think there is something about the the context in which sport is played in any country at any mm. time, mm. which 
in another country at another time, you look at it and you say, mm. well, that's crazy. Mm. It's not mm. that crazy because mm. that's how it was. Yeah. But you were worse. Yeah. So in rugby at that time, if you were sent off five times, yeah. were you banned for life then? Um, what was, well, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure about that. I've sort of I've read that, um, you know, there were guys, lots of guys who were sent off, you know, but... Um, yeah, you know, I, I why, mean, were you, I why were you banned for life? Why, were I, why was I banned for life? I don't know. I think um, it, it wasn't helped by the fact that I sort of um, pushed a referee and uh, refused to give him my name um, in one local derby. Um, and I got banned for six months for that, uh, which was around about the biggest ban around at the time. And then obviously when I came back after that ban, I'd only played an handful of games. And then we were drawn against Cardiff uh, in a cup match, uh, which was televised refereed by probably the leading referee in the world at the time, Clive Norlin, um, and I got sent off again. And obviously the Welsh Rugby Union just felt that they had to um, sort of do something to sort me out and ban me for life. And then obviously um, I hadn't learned my lesson. I was out of the game for 18 months, um, appealed against the ban. The 18 months was longer than anyone else had had apparently. And so they allowed me back and then I got into trouble again. And so I suppose the, the only way that the Welsh Rugby Union could sort of top the last life ban was to ban me for life a, a, a second time. So, you know, that's how I ended up there. And um, at that point, you're coming towards the sort of natural end of playing career with injury and so yeah, on. Yeah, so, yeah. So yeah. You, you start to coach yeah. uh, with your brother Clive, yeah, yeah, Pontepreed, then yeah. Truorki, who went yeah. on a big run yeah. up through Welsh Rugby. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a tipping point that we come to here. Uh, we're going we're going to look in detail at how you work with young players since '93. Right. Yeah. So that's a long time yeah, since '93. Yeah. But there is, of course, a tipping point. This is the Christians in Sport podcast. Yeah. And, and somewhere around 1990 comes a. a the decisive moment when yeah. the should we call it the real Chris Jones starts to emerge. When I you come to, to Christian I, faith? Yeah, I would like to think so. Um, you know, obviously I didn't think like that pre-1990. I thought that was that was my life, um, the way I lived my life then. But uh, I wasn't happy. Um, and I got involved in coaching by accident, not design, uh, because my brother Clive was home from university. He took up the, the role as uh, player coach, you know, local side, Truorki. And obviously because I was banned, he asked me to help him out, and that's how we, how we got involved in coaching. So I've sort of been involved in coaching in some shape or form since 1983. Uh, and we coached at uh, our local side, um, Trochi, and then we went down to Pont de Preeth. There was a big uh, sort of fuss in the, in the Welsh uh, media uh, about having someone like me coaching one of the top sides in Wales. But in fairness, Pont de Preeth stuck by me. And... Um, and yeah, and and so we, we, we coached down in Pont de Pre, had a great time there. And then um then came the, the tipping point, as you say. Yes, well take take me to the Brecon Jazz Festival then, it's nineteen ninety, and despite the fact that you've been in your own words, a, a waster mm. in your behaviour for many years, you hadn't been arrested mm. and in Brecon in nineteen ninety you find yourself in a prison cell. Yeah, well, I mean, I I had been arrested at various times over the years, um, and you know, as much trouble as I got in on the field, I got in off the field as well. Um, you know, we're always involved in scrapes and fights and, and everything else. Again, it was sort of 
like valley life at the at the time, I suppose, um, and eventually led it to to uh, the Brecon Jazz Festival, um, and I I don't think I'd ever listened to a jazz record in my life, as far as I know. Just went up there to to um, cause havoc, really. I knew we heard it was a good time there, and so a group of us from the Ronda Valley went up. Uh, and um, and I got involved in a fight again on a, a Saturday afternoon. I uh, got arrested uh, and uh, locked up in a police cells. And um, and I was eventually charged uh, on a Sunday afternoon with wounding with intent and violent disorder. And basically, the police were trying to say that I'd stabbed an undercover drug squad officer, and I was kicking his head in on the floor. You know, truth be told. If I'd had the opportunity, because I thought that he did a friend of mine, I would have. But I didn't do it. Um, and so, you know, I went back to the cells that night. Um, after talking to my wife, who I'd asked to come up to the, uh, up to the uh, police cells because uh, I'd had to change my clothes to go to court next morning. Um, and I went back to the cells that night, frightened, because I didn't want to go to jail. I knew I had no witnesses. But most of all, I was ashamed because I thought, how has my life come to this, you know? And so I was stuck in a cell and just tried to think, how can I get out of this? I can't fight my way out of the sun. I can't talk my way out of it. Um, and I just paced this cell back and forth for literally hours. And then I just came to a point of, of just saying, God help me very quietly because there were a couple of other guys asleep in the in the in the cell and um and then i thought well if you know if there is a god why would he ever want to help someone like you because of all the trouble and pain that you caused and that didn't help and then i just thought you know i really have had enough and if there is a god if you are there god i'm sorry and i want to change i i really want a fresh start in life and if you give me a fresh start, then I'm going to commit my life to you. Or I'm going to go your way. And I, to be real, I never saw any flashing lights. I never heard any choirs of angels or anything like that. But I did have a, have a feeling that when I came to that thought of it's a good thought, it's a, it's a, it's a, right, it's a right thing to do, it's a... It's what I've been looking for. Um, because there have been various times in my life where I did used to think there's got to be more to life than this. And I could never figure out what more to life it was. But that, in that cell, at that moment, it did feel like that's what you've been looking for, Chris. And so I just thought, right, that's it. I'm, I'm going to try and go your way, God, if you're there. What that really meant at that time, I didn't have a clue. But it did feel good. What did uh, Gillian say, your wife? Well, I didn't think I was going to see her for a while. <laughs> but because uh, I had to go to court next morning, I handcuffed to a policeman who said that uh, we were going to be going to Swansea Jail on remand. Um, but amazingly, the clerk of court, after conferring with the magistrate, um, did they decided that I could have conditional bail, which allowed me to go home. And I had to go back to Crown Court uh, a couple of months later. So when I did come home uh, and uh, appeared there, my wife wasn't too happy because obviously I'd been in trouble again. And when I tried to explain to her then about the 
experience I had the night before. I remember saying, well, you made some excuses for staying out, boy, but God, you know, you've got to be joking. But um, I started to go to church. Who had told you about Jesus then? Somebody must well, have told you about uh, Jesus. I, 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 um, yeah, right. Um, formally, probably not. I, I, I went to Sunday school when I was young because uh, we were sent to Sunday school. My mother and father didn't go, but myself and my brother uh, went. Um, my brother Clive got out of it, out of going as soon as he could, and bunked off and everything else. But uh, but I continued to go. But I can't remember hardly anything from those times. I would say that there was a um, a, a teacher that I had in primary school who was a Christian and used to read us Bible stories. So when I started to go to church, I did know a lot of the Bible stories. You know, um, but and, and the other thing was was that the the other sort of Christian that I came across was. Um, about a year before the incident in Brecon, I started work with British Rail, and and I was put with this old chap, um, lovely old Pentecostal minister, uh, and um, and I just realised that there was something different about him. I worked with him um, for about three weeks, and he really did. I'm in effect. I used to swear all the time. And, and he never said to me, don't swear. But I can remember coming home after working with him for about a week. And I can remember thinking, I am sworn today. That's amazing. And I, uh, and when I uh, finished working with him for, for three weeks, um, I remember saying to my wife, I want to buy him a present, a le like just to thank him for what he's done for me. Um, and, you know, that wasn't me at all. But it did, again, he was... A, good guy and I thought you know I'd been warned actually to watch out for him watch out because he's one of those born-again Christians and I thought well I actually said I'll sort him out <laughs> but, but I didn't at all he was a he was a nice guy but they were the sort of yeah. Christian influences if you like but big ones I mean yeah. look back now isn't it yeah, we talk about absolutely. it he, did he know that you turned to well Christ? that's the story in itself again because after uh, you know my conversion because um, that's where he was in the, in the police cells I thought right I've got to go around to see him Ron Evans um, and, and it turned out that uh, I'd heard he was really ill with lymphoma cancer and I can remember thinking oh, I don't go and visit sick people and things like this but I have to go to tell him and he was, uh, his wife let me in and he was lying on a settee with a blanket over him and we had a bit of small talk first and he was very nice but very sort of weak and I said, Ron, I've got to tell you, I, I've become a Christian. And he was like, Lazarus. <laughs> <laughs> he sort of sprung up Did he? on the set he and, the, and the blanket came off. And uh, he said, well, you what? <laughs> what? And then he invited me every Friday afternoon after work. He said, please come and see me. And so we had a little Bible study and he took me through John's gospel. Uh, for about a year that happened. And... Um, and he did incredible things, incredible kindness. The love that he showed me uh, was incredible. And and give me sort of huge tips, which I try and stick to to this day, you know, about I'm in a, uh, spending time each day with the Lord 
and if you can do it really um, and things like that you know and uh, great guy going to be with the Lord now but uh, good man fascinated now by by Ron there's a great story people sometimes hear somebody has become a Christian but they they hear the top level of the story yeah. but most of us are interested yeah. what was going on under the surface there yeah. now those stories help me but I, I want to, to I want to find out right about your coaching record right. you have revolutionized coaching in this little part of Wales where the rugby team in the Rhondda Valley never beat the big boys the Cardiffs the Swansea's Llanelli's. Mm. here's a record from uh, the last 20 years nine times your valley has won the Dewar Shield under 15 top competition for young players in Wales N never won it before won it nine times since then you've had 90 more than 90 boys play for Wales in the youth age groups more than 40 boys have become professional rugby players which never really happened in your part of the world five full internationals since then so a revolution in the sport through the coaching team that you lead and a part of, right? Mm. You won't say that. That's why I've got to say it. Mm. Now, what strikes me about this is at your worst, when you were banned for life the first time, weird as that sounds, a journalist actually said to you that your influence on young people in the Rhondda Valley was probably terrible. Oh, and how did you deal with that question or that comment? I uh, yeah, I he did actually ask me that, and I um, I said I don't care. That's just uh, that's up to uh, up to kids to make their own mind up, you know. Um, so I had no um, concern whatsoever about whether I was a bad influence or a good influence, or you know, completely. Um, went over my head. No effect was all. So, so this is a, a revolution. We know now. We know the story. Then the Brecon Jazz Festival. Ron, the influence of Sunday school stories. Right, you are where you are. You're coaching. Did you have any doubts, having known that you had to be a follower of Jesus? Did you have doubts now about staying in the game? Yeah, absolutely. Um, after uh, after the the, the uh, Brecon experience. Um, I, I thought, right, one of the first things I've got to do is is get out of rugby. Rugby is my problem. And it took about a year um, before I got back involved. My brother Clive uh, had gone back to our local side, Triorki, to to um, take up a, the coaching position there again. And he was trying to persuade me to come back. Uh, and I said, look, you know, I've got a new life now, a better life, and I don't want to get involved. But it, it was uh, a, a, a pastor at the time, great friend, uh, John Bullock. And I have to say as well, you, Graham, and and the guys involved with Christians in Sport. I got involved with Christians in Sport. Um, and basically, between you all, you sort of said, um, you know, Chris, basically, the, the, the real problem is not rugby, it's it's yourself and um, you know if if you feel that you, you are strong enough to get back involved uh, you know in the game and concentrate on on um, you know on the good part of, of rugby then then it's fine to get back involved and and and, and to be a sort of um, 
witness in that sort of um, arena. And so, I, you know, it, it took about a year or so, but I got back involved uh, bit by bit. And, um, and you know, we did have a, a lot of success coaching our sort of village team to go through to play it uh, in the top level of, of Welsh rugby as the way things were set up then. Well, it was all a club game. There was no regional yeah. rugby. Uh, and we, we managed to, to um, take Truorki through to, to beat the... The, the likes of Pondepreeth and Clenetli and Swansea and, and get through to, I think it was third place eventually. So, that but, was, Chris, that was unprecedented. You've gone from yeah. a basic village team yeah. right through to the highest level yeah. of the sport and yeah. competed at the very top. I yeah. mean, that yeah. that's not done yeah. in Welsh yeah. rugby, right? That wasn't yeah, it done. Wasn't, it wasn't done at the time um, and it can't be done now because the, way the, the game is set up in a completely different way now. But it was also sort of at the time of the advent of professionalism and we were a small village team and we realised that we couldn't keep trying to compete with the big clubs, um, paying the, the, the wages that they were paying. So we had to uh, produce our own players. And so we got involved in a school's work and I volunteered to, uh, to take up the, the, the position of rugby development officer, which was interesting because obviously, you know, the, um, the school teachers and head teachers were obviously very wary about having someone like me with my reputation um, you know being coaching the, the school children quite rightly so but I just saw it as a, a great opportunity to put something back into com my community um, to, and to help youngsters um, you know um, that I could relate to and um, you know and, and try and help them to um, really, to try and help them to, to realise their potential, that's, that's really what motivates me. How long do you think it took? You've now been 22 years. Yeah. How long do, do you think it took some head teachers at primary level yeah. and secondary level, 30-odd yeah. primaries, six yeah. secondaries, yeah. to actually... Mm. Trust you? Yeah. Did it take a while? Yeah, it, it, it did take a while. But I think, like anything, um, when they could see that I really did care for for the kids and cared for the community, and that I had changed, it was genuine. Then um, you know, th then they supported me. And as you say, you know, the the proof in the pudding, I suppose, is that twenty two, twenty three years later. Here I am, and I'm still doing it and loving it more than ever. Do you, do you get pleasure? It's easy for people involved in sport to see the sheer pleasure of bringing through Welsh internationals. You, yeah. you know, that, that's yeah. e almost easy and obvious. Yeah. Uh, winning national titles. Yeah. I'd like the reality of this, mine, not the nice yeah. answer now. For, for the kids, the kids who are never going to be that player, yeah. but you're working with them in the schools yeah. weekly, fortnightly. Yeah. How does that balance work for you in terms of pleasure? Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I, as I said, the, the, the most important thing for me is to try and help youngsters in the Ronda Valley to reach their full potential as, as rugby players, but more importantly, as young men. Um, and, you know, they... There's a process involved. It, it takes a lot of hard work, a lot of self-discipline, um, a lot of building up self-esteem and whatever, which are good values for life, not just for rugby. Um, and, yeah, um, you know, I, I, if, 
if you can get if I can get one kid to be the best he can be to, and that means just staying out the trouble because it, as I said it is a tough environment we live in up in a, up in the Rhonda but if I can just get one kid to, to do that that's just as important to me as a, as a boy who becomes a, a Welsh international has has the culture culture changed so when you're talking coal mining every mm. village has got a mine hard mm. men since that period when you were a boy mm. the valley has gone through depression yeah. loss of mines mm. mass unemployment drug mm. problems yeah is the culture tougher now or is it simply different uh it's different um yeah you know i mean obviously the coal mines have, have closed but uh there's unemployment there, uh, which leads to all its own sort of problems. Um, and it's probably, you know, we, we're really dealing with now the sons and the grandsons of, of the coal miners. Um, but it's still a tough area, you know. I don't know, you know, the, the weather makes it tough. The facilities are not always the best. And we have always feel that uh, we've got a lot of things to get over. You know, uh, there's like a chip on his shoulders up there, I suppose. But, you know, it, they, if you can harness the, um, the energy of these boys, they often make the best rugby players, you know. And, and I think as well that, that um, as I think it was Richie McCaw, the great all-black flanker, says, you know, that good men become good all-blacks. Well, I would say that, you know, Good boys become good rugby players as mm. well. They still aren't always true. Yeah. If um, if the young Chris Jones was listening to the current Chris Jones now, yeah. what would he make of him? Uh, he wouldn't believe it. I don't think he would say. You know, he would never believe that it could happen. Um, impossible, absolutely impossible. But. Um, Yes, I just, I do wish with all my heart that um, I could have, I do wish, I, straightforward, I wish I could have been a Christian when I was younger. I wish I'd known, when I, I know it's a old cliched saying, but I wish I knew uh, then what I know now. Um, um, but, you know, I think it's, you have to be, you have to be careful you know when you when you were uh, a sort of nurturing these youngsters you can't be seen to be to preach to them mm. um i sort of i suppose i break all the politically correct um protocols that there are you know you you've got to love them with all your heart um but that love is not a wishy-washy love either you know it's a it can be a tough love and other times there are times that you have to say no and i think in this day and age um, you know, sometimes children find it difficult to accept being told no, but um, but they do hear that from me, you know. But um, yeah, it is it is it's an interesting challenge, but it's one that I I love. Well, yeah. in your fifties, I'm thinking now you must have, you know, people in their seventies who knew you as a boy. Yeah, you'll have your peers who knew what you were like yeah. and who saw you become a yeah. Christian. Yeah. You'll have coached. Their kids, I'm and presumably their grandkids by now. Yeah. So I you've am. been through all these generations. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, it is interesting that I'm actually um, not just coaching uh, 
the the children of players that I played with and their grandchildren. I'm coaching children now of players that I coached as a Christian rugby development officer. Remarkable, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Well, the work will go on and um, my joy today, real joy, yeah. chatting away with you yeah. is... And I don't know how you feel about this as, as you listen to us. You, you just think it's a lifetime's work. You, you know, sports people all over the world with a passion for sport. Many, many who listen to this podcast say, well, I'm not a Christian. Mm. I, I'm interested in this big thing. I like listening to top sports people mm. talking. I get mm. them. Mm. There's something about their Christianity. When you speak to somebody who's kind of unlocked something here, this bright kid, this bright, sharp kid, goes through a real rough time and then ends up investing all the rest of his life in boys like him from the background he came from. Mm. I mean, what a privilege. Doing this podcast is a joy, mind. When you And I'm saying mine now because I'm getting very Welsh. Because I'm talking to my Welsh mate. Yeah. Chris Jones. Great. Top man. Uh, thank you, Graham. Thank Don't you very much. Blessing, boy. <laughs> Always every the same, isn't it? Uh, Always yeah, the same. Top man, he is. Top man. Here we are, look, in Cardiff on the night of an international right. doing yeah. this interview. Yeah. Wouldn't be anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah. Top. Hey, uh, you've been listening to the Christians in Sport podcast. Uh, anything you want to know, anything we can help you with, christiansinsport.org.uk. Everything will be there. Meanwhile, see you next time.